Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. So I got caught up in a show on Netflix a few weeks ago called Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones. Anybody else get sucked into that one also? Right, so this show is, uh, it chronicles a man by the name of Dan Buettner, who's a longevity obsessive and expert. And he goes to four different places around the globe where people live an extraordinary long life. Like not just one person, like my grandma's gonna turn 100, Lord willing, on Thanksgiving day. Um, but they, like he visits places where lots of people live to 100 and he tries to figure out why. Like, what is it that allows these certain, what he calls blue zones, to lead to such long lives? And is it, is it the diet? Is it weather? Is it community? Is it, is it some form of all of those put together? And the show, I thought, was just fascinating. It drew out two realities. Number one is we want to know how to live longer and we want to know how to live better. Number two, we don't like pain. We don't like death. And if there's a way to avoid it or extend our life, we want to find it. And I think Buettner in so many ways is trying to help us minimize that pain. But if we're honest with each other and with ourselves, it's still present. I mean, wars, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, it's a part of our collective human experience. Like None of us will avoid that. You may live to 100, but you will eventually die. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Unless Jesus comes back first. And see, like, I think people go to someone like Dan Buettner in order to sort of help them live longer and, and maybe even avoid some pain, which is, I think, the same reason a lot of people go to church. Like, wait, we turn to church, we turn to Jesus for the same type of salve. But a lot of us find ourselves disappointed because it turns out that Jesus's agenda isn't to help us avoid all pain and sorrow and suffering. Did you know that? And you know what? You only have to start reading through the Bible in order to see that. Because all throughout scripture, there's people who are faithful, who walk with Jesus, who walk with God as Lord and Savior, and they experience hardship. I mean, listen to the Psalm. The Psalmist will write and say, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. I mean, this is a picture of God asleep and the psalmist going, how loud do I have to shout it? Wake up. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget your, our affliction and oppression? God, where are you? And I don't know about you, but I absolutely love the raw, honest testimony of Scripture. I love that scripture takes place in real life, not in some fantasy world where so many of us can go, I get that prayer. I, I, I've prayed that prayer. In fact, um, I was scrolling through my Instagram just this week and I saw a post and somebody just lamenting all the pain and hardship that's going on in Israel right now. And I started to read through the comments in that post and listen to one comment that I stumbled across. This woman writes and she says, I've been a Christian for 25 years, but I can't keep making excuses for God. How can he stand back and watch this suffering and not act in some way? It's floored me. 
And yes, I've heard all the arguments for suffering. I know them inside and out. But a God of love? A God who loves these people more than is possible to understand? Sorry, but I'm out. Now that's sort of taking it to the extreme. But my guess is that a number of you have felt similar things that have risen up in your soul. Like you've gone, God, I just don't get it. If you're all powerful and all loving, then why? If, if, you, if you care about us so deeply, then why? And isn't it true that so many of us, we walk into this space and we have expectations of God. We have expectations of what faith in God will bring about in our life. And some way, our expectations is that our faith in God will help our lives get better on some level. But we also know that our expectations and our experience don't always line up. Does anybody want to whisper, amen? amen. See, disappointment with God is often the gap between what we expect and what we experience. Disappointment with God, if we're brave enough or honest enough to say that today, disappointment with God is often the gap, the delta between what we expected to happen and what we actually experience in real life. And over a lifetime of apprenticeship to Jesus, we will inevitably experience the glory of the right now kingdom of God. Where God will show up and God will move and he will move mightily and he will move in power and we will go, oh, nobody but God could have done that. And we will also experience the not yet of the kingdom of God. Where there's things that we're longing for and things that we're praying for and things that we're hoping for and pleading with God for. And he will in his mercy and wisdom and even in his grace say, no, no. And I'd suggest to you that faith is actually found in the gap between what we expect and what we experience. And John chapter 11 is all about that. If you have your Bible with you, would you open with me to John 11, where we start to learn, and I think this is sort of um, even a guidebook for us of how we live faithfully in the kind of world where what we expect isn't always what we experience. Now, you may remember, we left off last week, and in verse 42 of chapter 10, it says, And many believed in him there. See, Jesus is on the east side of the Jordan River. There, it's about 21 miles outside of Jerusalem as a crow flies, but it's a few-day walk in Jesus' day. And people were going outside of the city into the wilderness to pursue Jesus, and they were wanting to hear him and see him and listen to him, and it says many had faith in him there. That's where we left off, and we'll jump into the next story. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Are you there? Wonderful. Here we go. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Now, Lazarus is um, a, a, word, a, a name that is translated from the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God is my help. And I would suggest to you that there's nobody in the entirety of Scripture who experiences the help of God more than Lazarus. In the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. So you have these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, is sick. Verse 2. Verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord 
with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, I love that because that story is coming up next week in John chapter 12, but John's like so excited, he can't wait for it. So he's like, fast forward a little bit and then, okay, back to the story. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Everybody say love. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, this is all setting up the story. This is like putting the the ball on top of the tee and Jesus is just going to hit it off over the next few verses together. But I want you to notice that the sisters have one agenda in mind. And their agenda is our brother is sick. And Jesus, if you show up, you can heal him. You can make him well. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not have the same agenda. How many of you know that Jesus sometimes have a di- has a different agenda than the one that you have? He has a different thing in mind than what you have in mind. And I think that so much of our frustration or disappointment in God has to do with the fact that we have one agenda and he has another. That we have one perspective and he has another. My um, predecessor, good friend and mentor, Dennis Keating, um, was fond of the acrostic Spigo. Anybody remember this? Spigo. Something, let's just read it together. Let's just read it together. Something bigger is going on. Something bigger is going on in your life too. And, And I just want to ask the question, is it possible that maybe God has a bit of a different agenda in your life than the one that you have? Is it bigger? Is it, is it possible that he sees something with perspective that you don't see it with? Now the story continues and the drama begins to build. It says this in verse five. Now Jesus loved, everybody say loved, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If you have your own Bible, circle that word, so. He loved them, so he stayed. And it's interesting because I think so many times when God doesn't act the way that we want him to, when that gap between our expectation and our experience starts to widen, the first question we often ask, or maybe I should say I often ask is, God, do you love me? Do you love me? Because if you loved me, I wouldn't be walking through this heartbreak. If you loved me, you would have healed them. If you loved me, the job would have come through or the relationship would have been patched up or healed. God, if you loved me, the world wouldn't feel so chaotic. If you loved me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be wrestling with this depression or anxiety. God, you must not love me because you haven't answered the prayer in the way that I've wanted you to. And I love that John just drops down this breadcrumb for every single one of us reading and every single one of us sitting here today to say to us that God's expediency in answering your prayers is no reflection of his love for you. In fact, in fact, I'd say it like this and I'd invite you to write it down, that God's delays do not imply God's indifference. God's delays do not imply God's difference. Indifference, And I don't know what you're waiting on today. I don't know what prayer you've prayed that God has consistently said no or not yet to. 
I don't know what kind of pain you bring into these rooms. I don't know what kind of expectations you had of God and your experience was different. I don't know what kind of disappointments you harbor deep within your soul. But I do know this. He loves you even when he says no and not yet. He's for you even when our expectation and our experience is worlds apart. And he sees you. He sees you right now today in the midst of any sorrow or pain that you bring into this room. His delays do not imply his indifference. And John wants to make that exceedingly clear. So he tells us he loved them. He loved them. He loved them because he doesn't want us to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss it. And so Jesus stays two days. And listen to the way the story goes. It's not going to be on the screen, so just follow along in your Bible or iPad or phone or on your neighbor's. <laughs> then he said this to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he's presumably still east of the Jordan, right? Few day walk, 21 miles as a crow flies, so more than that walking. Let's, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? And he's like, like, hey, Jesus, we love you way too much. Like, you, you do remember what happened last time. We, we ran out of there because they were trying to kill you. Jesus answered them, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, I think Jesus is using this as a parable to say, nothing can happen to me apart from my father's will. I'm perfectly comfortable walking back into Judea, trusting that my father is good and that I can follow him. If he's saying go, we go. And after saying these things, he said to, one of, said, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. <laughs> the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, I don't know about you. I love this because there's so many times I'm reading the Bible and I'm like, Jesus, I don't know if I understand fully what you're saying. And I love this because I'm reminded that even the people who were standing there face to face talking with him as he walked this earth felt the exact same way. Like what? We're going to wake Lazarus up because he's sleeping? Now, okay, so as a pastor, like you tr I try to sit with a text and sort of turn it around in my mind, like when I'm walking my dog in the morning. I, 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 just, I just want it to get in me. And I had this image this week of like, maybe Lazarus was like a really good napper. Like, <laughs> like maybe he had, uh, like, like preachers on a Sunday afternoon have a reputation of being able to take naps like any, like maybe Lazarus was the same way. And like, he was so asleep that they sent word to Jesus. Only the son of God can wake Lazarus up this time, right? I don't know. I don't know. And then Jesus says, he says to them, he spoke plainly, Lazarus has died. Like, let me, let me break it down for you, brothers. Our buddy's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him so that you may believe. It's the reason that John writes this whole gospel. He tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, 
I've written these things for you that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing you may have life in his name. And he says, now Jesus says, and, and I'm delaying so that you would believe. So Thomas, verse 16, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Now, if you have your own Bible, circle that and write off to the side, doubting Thomas, question mark. Like the brother gets a really bad rap only because he says after Jesus dies, like, let me touch your sides and your hands. Here he's going, if we're going to Jerusalem, if you're going to Jerusalem to die, we're going with you. I'm in. Like Thomas is faith-filled in this moment. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. They had some sort of notoriety, some sort of popularity in Jerusalem. So people came out, walked those two miles up the hill to Bethany, where they could be with them to help them grieve. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, I want you to notice that Mary and Martha, two sisters, have experienced the exact same event. Their brother has died. But they respond to it very differently. They both grieve, but they grieve very differently. Martha goes out to meet Jesus on the road. As we're going to see, I think she's a little bit ticked off. She's running to him like, like, like rabbi, friend, master. You could have done something about this. Which, by the way, is her personality in Luke chapter 10. When Jesus comes to her house, Martha's the one who's cooking food. Martha's the one who's serving. Martha's the one who's on the move. So it shouldn't surprise us that she stays right in line with her personality, with the way that she grieves, and runs out to Jesus, meets him on the road. She's like, why? And Mary, more contemplative, grieves inwardly, in line with her personality. She's the one who sits at the feet of Jesus. She takes notes in her notebook. She's a contemplative. She's processing inward. Martha, outward and loud. <laughs> Mary, quiet and inward. Which begs the question, how do you grieve? How do you grieve? Uh, more like Martha? A little bit more like Mary? I love that the scriptures don't give us a recipe for how to grieve. Like neither one of these women is condemned for the way that they go about their grief. I think the story just extends an invitation to us in the midst of a world that doesn't go the way that we want it to, where we have a gap between our expectation and our experience. The invitation in that gap is to bring it to Jesus, to bring the hurt and the sorrow and the pain to Jesus. And I just want to stand before you and say, I'm not always good at that. Anybody with me? Like, um, I'm not an outward griever and I'm not an inward griever. I'm just a non-griever sometimes. And here's my reasoning. My reasoning has always, had always been, what's it going to change? The event happened. What is it, what's it going to change if I grieve it or if I just put my head down, work hard, and try to prevent something like that from happening again? What's grief going to change? The answer to that is almost everything, almost everything. Um, poet and hymn writer, poet and hymn writer, William Cowper put it like this. He said, grief is itself a medicine. 
is itself a medicine. See, it turns out that when we grieve, when we go through the process of bringing our sorrow and our hurt and our pain to somebody else who's safe in our life or to God himself, the neuropathways in our brain actually start to rewire and God actually starts to heal through the process of us bringing that into the open. So what happens? What, what does grief change? It changes you and it changes me. And in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of frustration, there's this invitation that Jesus is extending to us to express our grief honestly. To express our grief honestly. I, I think that's the reason. The, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in what we often term the Beatitudes, Jesus would say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. Like something happens when you pour your honest heart out before God and before others. They start to surround you, but God starts to come and interact with you by the power of his spirit in a unique way where there's healing that starts to take place. Okay, so let's dive into this a little bit deeper. Let's look at the way that Martha mourns and that Jesus responds to her. And then we'll do the same thing with Matthew. So verse 21, here's how it goes. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, and I almost imagine her pointing her finger, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I, I think she's raw. I, I, think Martha's, I think Martha's angry. I'm not, I, I think Martha's like not holding any punches back. Read between the lines. If you hadn't have stayed two days on your nice vacation in the desert, my brother would be alive. Thank you very much. And here's the deal, you guys. Oftentimes we read this and it's like, well, Martha, if you just had a little bit more faith, maybe. And I'd suggest to you that this declaration is a declaration of immense and extreme faith. I believe, Jesus, I believe if you'd been here, things would be different. That's unbelievable faith. So Martha, Martha pours out her heart and listen to the way that Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know. <laughs> I, I paused there because I wonder if Martha did too. Like we read it, Jesus is giving this amazing theological truth bomb that like literally changes eternity. And Martha's like, I know. We've talked about this, Jesus. You told us this the other day. Like, I, I, I think what Martha's saying is, I know that's going to happen someday. But I'm not sure how it helps me today. And some of you know that pain. You, you deep conviction, deep conviction that one day Jesus will turn everything right. One day. Jesus will say your name or that loved one's name and they will rise. Today, they are in heaven, but that means that they're not here. And I think when Martha says, I know, I think she's saying, I get that that's gonna happen someday, but how does that help me today? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am 
the resurrection. This is one of those great I am statements in John's gospel. Circle it if you have your own Bible. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm resurrection and Zoe, life that will never end and is better than you could ever imagine. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live again. Like death is a reality, but it's not gonna be the finality. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus asks Martha the most important question anybody could ever ask her. Do you believe that I'm the resurrection, Jesus says, and the life? And she says, I do. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the son of God who's coming into the world. The truth that Jesus has just shared with Martha is life and eternity changing. He's claiming to be the one who would fulfill every messianic hope that the Jewish people had, that one day God would come and that God would turn the worlds to right and that he would make every right wrong, that he would speak a word and those who were dead and God would rise. And she still goes, I know, I know. It's interesting to me that Martha grieves outwardly, runs to Jesus. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And the way that Jesus responds to Martha is by giving her an answer. He unpacks what's gonna happen to her brother on the last day. You'll notice as we read on that Jesus doesn't respond to Mary in the same way. She responds to him with the same words that her sister used, but Jesus's response is different because Jesus's response is always customized to the individual. It always meets you exactly where, he always meets you exactly where you're at. He doesn't have prepackaged answers for grief. He meets you in all the burdens, in all the pain, in all the sorrow, in all the questions, in all the disappointments, he meets you. What Martha needs is an answer. What Mary needs is something different. Verse 28. So when she'd said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. So quick time out. Mary is grieving contemplatively. She's grieving inwardly. But Jesus refuses to let her grieve alone. He says, no, 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 no. Like, she's not going to grieve in isolation. She's not going to grieve apart from me. Go get her and bring her to me. So when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. I love that Jesus is not in a hurry. You know that Jesus never hurries and he's never late. Like we may think delay, like God was late. God, if you'd done something, if you'd showed up, Jesus is never late and he's never in a hurry. See, some of you know people that are never in a hurry, but always late or always in a hurry and never late. Jesus never in a hurry and never late. Verse 31. So when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet. I mean, you just have to picture it. The dusty roads of Bethany and Mary is at Jesus's feet. Now, if you follow Mary throughout the gospels, what you'll see is she's often at Jesus's feet. 
in Luke 10, Martha's hurrying around the house. Mary is at Jesus's feet. In the next chapter, we're going to see Mary bending down, anointing Jesus's feet, and then wiping it, them with her hair. And once again here, she follows suit. She falls at his feet and says the same thing her sister said. Lord, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. She says the same thing to Jesus, but Jesus does not say the same thing back to her. Because Mary and Martha are different, and they need different things from Jesus. So when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Everybody say deeply moved. If you have your own Bible, circle that and write off to the side, angry, upset, ticked off. Like, like so upset that his insides are just turning with frustration and anger. What's he angry at? I think he's angry at death itself. I think he's angry because he's looking at a world that he loves, that he designed, that he cares about, that he's involved with, and it's not, it doesn't look the way that he designed it. Because sin and death and evil and sorrow and suffering were never a part of his original design. And it ticks him off. It ticks him off. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have the favorite verse of everybody who ever had to memorize 10 verses in their whole life. Right, right. You've got to memorize 10 verses. And you knew you always had one in the back of your mind. Jesus wept. <laughs> Two words. Shortest verse in our English Bible. And yet, I would say that there's an absolute mountain of theology underneath these words. See, see, Jesus is angry, and we almost expect him to turn into this like Rambo-like face-painted figure that just goes in to Bethany, starts taking names and heads rolling, and instead we get Mother Teresa bending down to care for those who are sick and hurting. See, I think a lot of us, we have in our minds a God who looks a lot more like the God Plato described than the God the scriptures describe. See, Plato described God as an unmoved mover, a God who is too big to be touched by his own creation, a God who is distant enough to create and make things good, but not involved enough to be pained by the bad decisions we make and the way that sin has stained and scarred his good world. And I think a lot of us, we have that God in mind. Like we, we say things like God is unchanging, immutable, and therefore he cannot be emotionally or emotionally involved with his creation or care about us all that much. And I just want to say to you that that is a lie from the pit of hell, that the God of the Bible is deeply involved in, cares for, and even is empathetic to the creation that he designed, created, and still loves. He's committed to not giving up on us. And so we can trust his heart of empathy. I think that's what we're seeing in this passage. That oftentimes that question of God, why don't you show your power more in preventing or alleviating suffering and pain? We may not know the answer to that question, but we do know the answer to the way God responds to our pain and suffering, and it's by entering in. It's by meeting us in it. 
It's by weeping with us. You know, sometimes I wrestle with like, all right, Jesus, how, how real were those tears? Because you knew, you knew in a few moments that you were going to say, Lazarus, come on out. And, and he was. It's like, are you, are you positioning for like an Academy Award here? Are they real tears? And I would say 100% real. And here's how I would describe it. For those of, of you and us in the room that are parents or grandparents, when our kids were little, we would see them fall down and, and like scrape a knee and we would get down on our hands and knees. If you're a good parent, you would. Um, and, um, <laughs> and we'd say, buddy or, or sweetie, like, I'm, gosh, I'm really sorry and, that you scraped your knee and we would help him put a Band-Aid on it and we would help sort of nurse him back to health all the while knowing you're not going to care about this scrape in an hour. And when our kids get older and they experience heartbreak and they get turned down to, by somebody to go to a dance or they get turned down from a job, like we enter in and we hurt with them and we weep with them all the while thinking, someday you're going to look back on this and be grateful. Someday this is going to be part of the story of the way that God works and weaves your life together for his glory, but it doesn't prevent us from entering in. The same is true of Jesus. He feels in real time with you, even though he sees the end from the beginning. He hurts because we hurt. And the shocking revelation of scripture is that that's exactly what he does with his children and his kids. The way that you interact with your kids is the same way that he interacts with you. I love the fact that God's omniscience does not keep him from identifying with our pain. So once again, everybody looks on and they go, Whoa, see how he loved them. And it's as though the, the congregation of the crowd is just in absolute shock. My tendency, and this is um, like stereotypically, sometimes this is a male tendency. I don't know, you can try it on. It's, it certainly is mine. Um, when there's a problem, I want to fix it. Is anybody with me? Like when there's a problem, I want to fix, especially, man, if I had the power to raise the dead, I would be like fixing so many things, right? <laughs> and I'm struck by the fact that Jesus feels it before he fixes it. And I wonder if that's a word for some of us in this place today too, that yeah, like there may be a space and a time to go to, how can we improve this? How can we make it better? But I would submit to you that Jesus is inviting you to feel it before you try to fix it to enter into the pain and the sorrow before you go, and here's the plan of how we get out of this. Feel it before you fix it. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I love this. Now they're using his power against him. Like, don't we do this with God sometimes too? We're like, we'll acknowledge his power, but then we'll still think we're smarter than him. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, that's that word, angry, upset, came to the tomb. It was the cave and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. In the King James, he stinketh. <laughs> For he's been dead four days. Now in the rabbinic tradition of their day, the soul would hover over the body for three days. Day four, the soul would be like, peace, we're out, okay? 
And so this is their way of saying he's really dead. He's not part dead, he's really dead, okay? And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Wow, that's quite the statement. I know you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. Why did he say it? That they may believe that you have sent me. Remember, these sisters have one agenda. My brother's sick. He needs healing. God has a different agenda. Spigo. Something bigger is going on. What's the something bigger? According to Jesus, it's that they may believe that you've sent me. That's the something bigger. That's what the story is all about. The story of Lazarus is not a story about a man who gets raised from the dead. It's a story about a people who are called to faith. See, I'm confident that Jesus is more interested in raising the faith of the crowd than he is in raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's hard for us to understand and it's hard for us to comprehend. But in Jesus' economy, faith is better than healing. And I know we would want to flip it. And I know we would want to go, well, Jesus, you heal and then I'll have faith. And, but Jesus would say back to us, I, I know that that's the way that you've been taught that it often works. And sometimes it does work that way. But I want you to know that the most important thing about you is not whether or not you get whole or healed this side of heaven. The most important thing about you is whether or not you are willing to walk with me in trust and faith through the garbage, through the hardship, through the pain, through the sorrow. What's more important is not what you're walking through. It's who you're walking with. And I know. I know, I, I'm looking out at some of you and I know some of your stories and I know some of the pain and I know some of the hardship and I know how this might land on some of you, but it doesn't make it less true that Jesus is calling you to himself. Will you walk with me even in the gap between your expectation and your experience? Will you make faith your primary pursuit? in the midst of it all. So here's the miracle. We're finally there. And I've got two minutes left. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I love that he has to say his name. Because if he doesn't, Think of how many people walk out of the grave. He's like, oh, no, no, not that Lazarus. The other, no, it's a popular name, right? The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet unbound, bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Oh, you guys, this is so good. We could do a series of messages just on this. What I want you to see is that only Jesus can raise the dead. Only Jesus can make someone new. Only Jesus can bring about somebody being born again. But it's a community of faith that comes alongside those who have been born again and those who have been raised and those who have been made new. It's a community of faith that comes around and says, let me help you walk in freedom. Get those grave clothes off. 
because Jesus has new life in store for you. That's the reason we have ministries like Set Free or Freedom in Christ. It's the reason we gather together in community so that we can encourage each other. We partner with Jesus to bring about renewal. He makes new, but we unbind. And I would suggest to you that this Lazarus story is simply a microcosm of the entirety of each of our lives. It's the seventh sign in John's gospel. It's sort of the, the, the climax, the culmination of all the signs. But remember, a sign isn't the same as the substance. A sign simply points to what's coming and paints a picture of, oh, there's more. One of, my, one of my favorite things to do is um, I, I love smoking meats on my Traeger and feeding my family. And um, so this Friday I smoked two tri-tips and they were just like perfectly done, like just medium, like medium rare, like just, oh, they were just like, they came out of the smoker and they're like the glory of God, right? Just <laughs> Shekinah, Shekinah. And so I let them rest for a while and then I start cutting them up. And it's amazing that when I start cutting it up, like my kids just start hovering. <laughs> and they're on the other side of our island. And, and I'll, I, every time they gather around there, I'll take my knife and I'll cut little pieces off for each one of them. And I'll stick the knife out to them and they'll grab it and they'll go, oh, so good. Here's what they don't say. They don't say, so good, I'm full, I'm out. What they say is, I can't wait for dinner. The Lazarus story is simply Jesus holding out a knife saying, take a taste. There's more coming. There's more coming. The sign, the sign is simply the sign, it's not the substance. See, one day Lazarus would die again, but he would also be raised again the next time, never to die. You will one day die, but if by faith you are in Christ, just like he called Lazarus's name, he will call your name also. And when you rise, it will be to immortal, zoe, eternal life in all of its forms because there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things will pass away. Friends, behold, the new will come. One day he will call your name and he will make all things new. See, in this story, healing was just a foretaste, but salvation or resurrection or renewal is the fulfillment. And it's the fulfillment for every single person who by faith calls Jesus their savior. As Tolkien would write, everything sad will become untrue. Jesus did for Lazarus temporally what he will do for all of us eternally. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.